0: What makes Mike Florio the expert? You're about to find out. This is Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio on NBC Sports Radio.
1: Pro Football Talk Live, NBC Sports Radio, SN Hello once again to our friends in the UK, Ireland, and Scotland, and Canada, and Mexico, and everywhere. Now, I don't know who all is watching on Sky Sports. The folks in the UK, Ireland, and Scotland are, and we appreciate that very much. We appreciate Shereen Williams for a second day in a row, her new home studio. Isn't it great to be able to be on TV without having to get in your car and leave your house. I do not take that for granted. I love it very much, no matter how much Chris Sims is trying to disrupt my life by getting me to move to Connecticut. So I would have to go out on a cold morning. I would have to get in my car. I would have to do something other than, you know, walk down a hall, go up a flight of steps and do this. So, uh, Shereen, I'm glad you can do the same thing. And uh, welcome. Good morning. How are you today?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me again, Mike, and let me sit in Chris's seat and Aggie sit in a Longhorn seat. So that says something, I think.
1: Yeah, that well, that definitely says something. And uh, that, that is definitely a, a little rivalry we need to stoke more. We need to get you on on a day when Chris is on and just kind of <laughs> let nature take its course as it relates to the Aggies versus the Longhorns. The, that was the first college football rivalry I was ever aware of because they used to play on Thanksgiving night. And to me, that was such a big deal. Texas and Texas A&M. I mean, you know, that was the one that stood out for me way back when, when I first discovered football. All right, we've discovered an interview with Miles Garrett, the Browns defensive end, who has been reinstated. Reinstated Wednesday, interviewed by ESPN on Thursday. And as part of this new interview, Miles Garrett doubles down on his claim that Mason Rudolph, the Steelers quarterback, used a racial slur In the moments preceding Miles Garrett removing the helmet of Mason Rudolph and whacking him over the head with it. And uh, look, and let's be clear on this. Garrett has made the accusation in the past. This is the first time he's made it publicly. In the past, it was at his appeal hearing. And he supposedly wasn't happy that it got out. This time he reiterated it. He repeated it. He got into details about what was said. He said initially he tried to walk away. Rudolph kept coming. That's when he kind of blew a fuse. Um, Look, Shereen, I got two things to say about this. First, first, if you really don't want to use it as justification for what you did, why are you talking about it at all? Why is it part of the interview? Why isn't it part of the ground rules with ESPN? I don't want this coming up. I don't want you asking me about the racial slur that I claim Mason Rudolph used. I don't want that to be part of this discussion. I, I, I think they're trying to have it both ways. They want him to be able to say, well, this really isn't justification, but they want people who hear it to say, well, that's justification, because I'd have done the same thing if the guy used that word to me. So they're, they're walking a very fine line here when it comes to, on one hand, saying, I don't believe it's justification for what I did, and I don't want people to think I'm saying that, to at the same time hoping in a roundabout way that people hear that and say, yes, it justifies what he did.
2: Yeah, and it's not going to justify. No matter what he says, no matter what he heard, nothing is going to justify his actions. And that's what Tony Dungy said. uh, You know, when you talk to, to him, it doesn't matter what was said to him. You have to keep your cool. You can't act like that. That's the first time I think that we've seen an act really go over the total edge like that. I know Nadama Kansu did something stomped on Andre Gerard's head and things like that, but this to me was just completely and totally over the top, something we had never seen before and hopefully never see again. And no matter what was said, no matter what was done, you cannot do that on a football field or elsewhere. And if it was elsewhere, he'd be in jail right now.
1: And actually, it was Indomitian Sue stomping on the arm of Evan Dietrich Smith and accidentally stepping on the calf of Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> it was Albert Haynesworth who stomped on the okay, helmetless yes. head of Andre there Garrod go. and got suspended. Five games for that. That had been the most egregious thing we'd seen. But even this, swinging that helmet, I'm still amazed that Mason Rudolph wasn't injured. And if he had been injured, it would have been far worse than six games for Miles Garrett. But it was one of the most shocking on-field displays we've ever seen. And... Tony Dungy, I was surprised when he shared his views with me. Because, look, I, I, on one hand, I'm saying, well, Mason Rudolph should not be using language like this. But on the other hand, on a football field, you got to be ready to hear anything. And that's what Tony Dungy said. Here is Coach Dungy from the November 24th edition of PFT Live.
0: I'm sorry, I don't have sympathy with Miles Garrett if, in fact, that is what happened. If we're on the bottom of the pile and Mason Rudolph is kneeing you in the groin or he's trying to poke your eye out or he's twisting your knee, something that's going to affect your ability to do your work and your career, then, yeah, you can go off. But you can't go off because somebody said something to you. All kinds of things get said out there on the field. I can't go off and jeopardize my team's chances to go to the playoffs, my career, my ability to make money because somebody called me a name. I don't care what name, he, he said. That
2: is not an excuse to me.
1: And Coach Dungey later added that this is an issue that Miles Garrett should have taken up with Mason Rudolph after the game. Let's have a conversation about this inappropriate language you're using. Or, and, and this is my thought, take it to the officials. We see players complain to the officials all the time. I'm being held. I'm being interfered with. He's grabbing at me. He's pulling at me. Do you see what he did? Do you see what he did? He took, a, he took a swing at me. They do that all the time. And several years ago, the NFL made it clear that any type of slurs would be dealt with. So you say to the official, do you hear what this guy said to me? And you deal with it that way. You don't take the law into your own hands. You don't rip the guy's helmet off and hit him over the head with it. And Shereen... This leads to the other point that I wanted to make, and this is something you mentioned yesterday, and we can now underscore it, highlight it, circle it, put it in red, put it in yellow, put it in every color possible, because he's going to hear it more. He is going to... Right or wrong, and I don't think guys should be using this language on the field, but the reality is he's going to be hearing everything in the book. He's going to be hearing stuff about his mother, about his sister, if he has one. He's going to be hearing it nonstop, because by him we already knew that he was going to be baited incessantly, but this interview takes it that next step farther. It's clear that you can say things that will get
2: under his skin. And that's, what's going to happen. I mean, guys are going to go at him relentlessly trying to get that 15 yard penalty, trying to get him kicked out of the game. And look, he had a lot of 15 yard penalties last season. And most of them were for late hits on quarterbacks but they're going to be trying to get him to do things and do you not think the officials are going to be watching his every move absolutely they are anything he does that's even barely over the line he's going to get a penalty for so this is this is going to be something he's going to have to deal with from now on in his career it's not a, it's a stain that's not going away it's just going to be there with for with him uh, for the rest of his career officials are going to be watching him players are going to be trying to bait him whatever, he's got to learn to keep his cool. And hopefully he's had some help in learning how to do that because it's obvious he can't do that on his own.
1: Well, and here's the other side of it, Shireen. If the officials are going to be watching everything he says and does and how he reacts to what players on the opposing team say to him, I think it's incumbent on the officials to listen to how over the top the other players are in their handling of and treatment of Miles Garrett. If it really is this free-for-all now, where you've got everybody on the opposing team constantly uh, hurling insults and using slurs and expletives at Miles Garrett. At a certain point, you've got to protect Garrett from this onslaught, especially since the NFL several years ago did begin this process. Remember, there was a fine of Colin Kaepernick at one point for using the N-word during a game. Um, And there have been other players who have been accused of using it. There have been officials who have been accused of using it. But I think that the tools are there for the officials to protect other players from Miles Garrett physically, but also to protect Miles Garrett from excessive verbal abuse aimed at getting him to blow a fuse.
2: Well, and and Miles just needs to stop talking at this point. He said what he's needed to say. He needs to quit talking about this and move on and and get things together and and start getting ready for next year and not worry about what was done then. Let's worry about what we can do now to not have this happen again. And again, I I think, I hope that he went and got some help and and had some therapy and learned how to use that aggression that he has. It's what makes him a really good player. He had 10 sacks in 10 games last year. He has 30 and a half in his career. He's a really good player, but he's got to learn to use that aggression for him and not against him, which we've seen way too many times in his career so far.
1: I mean, it's obvious to me the decision to sit down with ESPN yesterday was a strategic move that I think had been in the works for a long time. He was going to sit down with Jay Glazer of Fox right after the incident. Somebody pulled the plug on that, either Garrett's camp or the Browns or a little bit of both. They didn't want to say anything that could or would have been used against him by the league. So once he's free and clear to get back in, that's when he tells his story. And again, I don't buy the idea that now he may think it doesn't justify what he does, or he may think that's what he needs to say. But, Telling this story and continuing to harp on the notion that a slur was uttered is the kind of thing that will get some people to say, well, now I understand why he did what he did. All right. Mason Rudolph is playing quarterback in that game because Ben Roethlisberger exited week two of last year and did not play again. Steelers GM Kevin Colbert, who recently signed a contract to remain with the team, said that Roethlisberger is due to get another checkup on his surgically repaired elbow in L.A. next Friday. But the prognosis is positive. All signs are good. We're hopeful he can make a complete recovery. The Steelers also don't think Ben Roethlisberger is at the end of the road. Shereen, my concern is more general. We've seen Ben Roethlisberger as he gets closer to 40. His body is beginning to maybe break down a little bit. It was the elbow last year. My concern generally going into 2020 is what is it going to be this year given all the years of physical abuse he's taken all the injuries, all the hits, everything, and and the guy's not on the TB12 plan. And we saw it happen to the elbow last year. I'm just curious what else is going to pop up as soon as this season.
2: Well, and what Kevin Colbert wouldn't answer yesterday was whether Ben Roethlisberger had Tommy John surgery. So it sounds like he had Tommy John surgery. And we've seen baseball pitchers come back for, from this a lot. I mean, it's it's pretty common in baseball and, and they come back, but it generally takes a long time to come back. So this offseason, we're going to get to see, really, where he is in his progress. Is he going to participate in the offseason program? Is he going to be there for OTAs throwing, or is he not going to throw? You know, we saw Andrew Luck's shoulder thing, and, oh, he's going to come back at this point and this point and this point, and it keeps going. Uh, So you hope Ben Roethlisberger's elbow is healing fine. He's going to be ready, at least be ready to throw at training camp and be ready to go. But you're right. When you start getting those injuries at a certain point in your late 30s, as a football player, especially as a quarterback, it's hard to bounce back from that. And they just seem to accumulate. They don't go away. And so we're going to see Ben Roethlisberger. I had him as my redemption candidate. I think if that elbow's healed, he's going to have a really good year. But it is a big question about just where he is and and how good he's going to be with this injury, coming back from this injury, and then any injuries he might accumulate Uh, coming into this season, if he's able to get out there and be the quarterback that he has been his whole entire career, which is a very good one.
1: And one of the strange rules of thumb that I have noticed in a lifetime of living in or within 100 miles of Pittsburgh, when the bar is high for the Steelers, they have a hard time meeting it. But when they get those years where nobody really expects anything, nobody knows what to make of the Steelers, nobody knows what to think of the Steelers, that's when it all falls together. And if Roethlisberger is healthy, and you think about it, of all the teams we're going to be circling as potential Super Bowl contenders in 2020, the Steelers aren't going to be one of them. And that's good news for the Steelers because historically, those are the years where they pull it together. Time for a break. We have more to come here on the Best of Pro Football Talk Live on NBC Sports Radio. This is the Best of Pro Football Talk Live on NBC Sports Radio. I'm your host, Mike Florio. There are some injured quarterbacks that still intend to contribute in the National Football League. And there are three names that really jump off the page. Cam Newton, who we have discussed because his future in Carolina is murky at best. Ben Roethlisberger, who we haven't discussed. He only played a game and a half of a game at most week two against the Seahawks before his elbow was shot for the entire season. And Alex Smith, who nearly died from a staph infection that went septic in 2018. He is healthy. He wants to play. Ron Rivera, the coach in Washington, has said, don't rule out Alex Smith. So of those three guys, Cam Newton, Alex Smith, Ben Roethlisberger, which would you want? Would you want any of them? Would you want more than one? Which guys would you want from Newton, Smith, and Roethlisberger in 2020, Big Cat?
0: So is the question, uh, I have franchise X, or is it which do I want in their current situation? Because Roethlisberger is the answer in that situation because he's the one guy who is going to be, you know, going back to something he knows. He's going to be going back to a team that has a fantastic defense that's going to put him in a spot to be successful. He doesn't have to win all the games for him. So that's the answer there. If it's... Actually, you know what? That's the answer for both ways. I would take Roethlisberger just for next year because I still don't know what's going on with Cam Newton. And Alex Smith, we haven't seen him play in a year and a half, so that is a complete unknown. So, yeah, my answer is Roethlisberger both at the Steelers or if you're just saying in a vacuum, pick a guy. All
1: right. My concern with Roethlisberger is that his injury last year wasn't the result of any specific injury. It just was – apparently overuse. And when Chris Sims was at training camp and interviewed Roethlisberger and and you've seen him before with the ice pack on every joint, he had a giant ice pack on his elbow and, uh, and Sims was a little alarmed by it because he really hadn't thrown that much that day. And Sims talked to him about what he does in the offseason by way of throwing. He doesn't do all that much. I mean, and, and look, I, I know I'm going to get uh, some feedback from people close to Roethlisberger who aren't going to appreciate this comment. But when you look at Tom Brady, you think this is a guy who does everything he can to extend his career as deep into his 40s as possible. When you look at Ben Roethlisberger, you see a guy who, and perception is reality. You see a guy who's eating pork rinds and watching bowling in the offseason. And when it's time to go play football, he grabs a football and he grabs his cleats and he goes to the training camp. I mean, and I know he, he does more than that. But you, you, you know, there's a chance his body is in the process of breaking down, especially when you consider. All the abuse he took, all, all those plays he extended, all those hits he absorbed. No, even if he is working out like Tom Brady and eating avocado ice cream and all of that stuff, I, I just feel like the the you know the 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 car is falling apart for Ben Roethlisberger, and the first major uh, issue is the elbow. And when he comes back from the elbow, I'm concerned it's going to be something else. That's my concern with Roethlisberger.
0: Okay, it's a fair concern, totally fair concern. Uh, I guess my counterpoint would be he is a guy who has played through a bunch of injuries. You know his toughness. You know that he can play through something that's nagging. And if he got surgery, you would hope that that elbow is now fixed. So it's almost better than playing with an elbow that hurts all the time and refusing surgery. I mean, at the point where modern medicine can fix something like an elbow like that, I would take my chances with a repaired elbow in Ben Roethlisberger versus a complete unknown in Alex Smith and a partial unknown in Cam Newton. At least Ben Roethlisberger, you know what the problem was. He got it fixed, and you can hope that he can be back and even, you know, 85 90% of what he was before he got hurt, which he was having a decline anyway. Like, that was already starting. But if you look at what the Steelers have around him and you look at the defense – I don't think they need hero Ben Roethlisberger anymore. They don't need 5,000-yard Ben Roethlisberger. They need a guy who can make plays and be competent. Look at what the Steelers did last year where they were still in the fight in mid-December with two quarterbacks they didn't believe in whatsoever. If they got just average play from either Duck Hodges or uh, Mason Rudolph, they would have been in the playoffs. They would have been in the playoffs. So that's what you're hoping for with Ben Roethlisberger next year, and I think you'll get it. And
1: they, they've talked, their owner has, Art Rooney, about adding a running back or a receiver in free agency because they recognize no Le'Veon Bell, no Antonio Brown. It's a different offense. And I don't rule out yep. the possibility of them trading for Le'Veon Bell Oh, because they were, they were one of the teams that contacted the Jets prior to the trade deadline. People were shocked by that. Le'Veon Bell said it himself multiple times, and it wouldn't shock me if they if they go ahead and bite the bullet, pay him $13.5 million for 2020. That's what he's due to make this year, and bring him back home and let him play with Big Ben and load up the cannon and try to get the number seven.
0: What about Antonio Brown? I thought that's what you were going to say because I wouldn't be shocked. That is the only place I see Antonio Brown going, and I know it sounds crazy right now, but think about it this I, way. Mike Tomlin – you know I criticized Mike Tomlin a couple years ago when I when it, you know there was Facebook lives going on in the locker room and everyone was fighting each other I said Mike Tomlin has kind of lost control of this looking back now with everything that's happened since that point it's actually the opposite Mike Tomlin did a masterful job of keeping everyone on the same page and keeping a very combustible locker room together through some crazy years and Mike Tomlin is the one guy who knows Antonio Brown better than anyone else right now and can maybe speak to Antonio Brown and get through to Antonio Brown on a different level, and the Steelers say to themselves, you know what, let's sign him. Let's sign him for basically nothing. If he—if the first sign that he is not all in, he's gone. We don't care, but let's try that out. i Don't you see a world that could happen?
1: There's a lot of damage that would have to be undone between Brown and Roethlisberger, and I don't know how charitable Roethlisberger is willing to be.
0: Time for a break. We have more to come
1: here on the best of Pro Football Talk live on NBC Sports Radio.
0: Yeah,
2: it's, funny. it's always good to win. Um, you
0: know, it's good to beat Cleveland. It's good to beat anybody. It's a tough league to win in. So, I'm um, you know, proud of what the guys did. Proud of what this team accomplished today. And, yeah, but we got bigger goals ahead. And, you know, amazing to think that he coached for another place and they didn't think he was good enough. You know, and then he comes here and uh, does a great job.
1: That's Tom Brady before that, Bill Belichick. After the Patriots beat the Browns this year to get win number 300 for Bill Belichick, coming against the team that had once fired him. Although it was not the Browns that fired Bill Belichick, it was the Ravens that fired Bill Belichick. The Browns (laughs) that became the Ravens. After they moved, as they were moving from Cleveland to Baltimore, they fired Bill Belichick, but that one's going to stick to the Browns forever. Hey, Cleveland, you wanted to keep the names and the records and the uniforms and the colors. You get to keep the legacy of the Browns firing Bill Belichick. And we mentioned that because today's draft, inspired by the 24th anniversary of the firing of Bill Belichick by the Browns, the draft is people who could get better given a second chance. And I have exercised my executive privilege here, Shereen, to expand it to anyone connected to the National Football League. Players, coaches, executives, anyone. You get the first question, or you get the first pick, rather, if you get the trivia question, right? And this one comes from the, as Sims would say, what color is blue category, although I may just be setting you up to to think it's going to be so easy that maybe you get it wrong. Bill Belichick, as mentioned, by the Browns 24 years ago today. Who followed Bill Belichick as the head coach of the Browns when they returned to the NFL in 1999.
2: That red light's on, and I uh, don't Cindy know the Brady. answer to that.
1: Cindy Brady. Cindy oh, Brady. Oh, Cindy Brady's back. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Chris Palmer. Wow. Wow. Chris
2: Palmer. He didn't last long either. Should have kept Bill and Belichick.
1: I, I don't know that I would have gotten that one right, frankly, in hindsight, but since I had it in front of me, it looked pretty easy. All right. First pick for me. I'm going to go with thought it was over my cough. Apparently I'm not. First pick for me, Leslie Frazier, the Bills defensive coordinator. He was coach of the Minnesota Vikings for a few years, took the team to the postseason. He didn't even get mentioned in this hiring cycle. Didn't even get mentioned. No interview, no mention, no nothing. Oh, the last time I checked, the Bills have a pretty damn good defense. So hopefully at some point the ship comes in. For Leslie Frazier, hopefully he at least gets mentioned for another head coaching job. But if and when he gets a second chance to be a head coach, there's a chance he's going to be pretty good. Because he's been great with the Bills defense. And he took a Vikings team that was basically in shambles thanks to some misguided leadership of Brad Childress. And yeah, 2011 wasn't good. 2012 was a playoff run. 2013, at the end of the season, the Wolf family decided to move on. But I think Leslie Frazier could be a very good head coach if and when he gets a second chance to do it, Shereen.
2: Yeah, and you're right. I didn't even think of Leslie Frazier when we were doing this. It's almost like he's been forgotten in this whole thing, and he's been a very good assistant coach for a really long time with a lot of different teams. And uh, he's one guy you look at that that you do think could be better in his second chance if he goes to the right situation. And it's always about that right situation And that's why my second, my first pick is going to be the obvious choice of Josh McDaniels, because I think that if he gets that right situation, which I think eventually is going to be New England replacing Bill Belichick, I think he's going to be a very good head coach. And he wasn't in Denver. I don't know that he could be much worse, considering what happened there and and how he failed in so many ways in that situation. But I think he can be a very good head coach in the right situation. And I do think New England is that right situation. Obviously, the Colts weren't. And teams are really leery of hiring him now, as they should be. But I do think he gets the Patriots head coaching job after Bill Belichick.
1: And it really is such a strange situation how this year the Browns job doesn't go to him. It goes to Kevin Stefanski. The Giants job goes to Joe Judge. Less accomplished head coaches than Josh McDaniels getting their first chances, and you just wonder when that opportunity for another head coaching position is going to come to Josh McDaniels. And, you know, there's been like a weird sense, and and I don't know what this comes from, and maybe it's just the reality that nepotism is such a part of the NFL coaching industry, but I'm starting to think Steve Belichick's going to be the next Patriots coach, not Josh McDaniels. I think the combination of this sense that McDaniels inevitably is going to leave – Coupled with, you're seeing more and more Steve Belichick. I, I just, I, I just, uh, for whatever reason, after 2019, I no longer feel like Josh McDaniels is going to be the natural replacement for Bill Belichick. And maybe it's because he will be gone by the time Bill Belichick decides to call it quits. All right, next one for me. And this is one that pops up from time to time. Um, and I, it's probably not going to happen, but I'd like to see Eddie DeBartolo own a team again. Uh, And, you know, and and yes, he deserved to have the team taken away from him because of what he did 20 plus years ago. But, you know, there are people around the league who believe that of the 32 teams, only 10 really know what they're doing. And the other 22 don't know what they're doing in large part because of who owns the teams and the leadership at the top and how it trickles down or otherwise to the lower reaches of the organization. And I'm not going to name who's in the 22 but DeBartolo, when he was in the league, he was in the 10. He clearly was in the 10. He knew how to put a winner together. He knew how to be the right kind of leader. And it would be great if he could find a way to put the capital together and get the approval. Remember when he got to the Hall of Fame, Shereen, there was a sense that it was moving in that direction where DeBartolo was going to buy a team. I just think that it's gotten to the point where it's so expensive. And I don't know anything about his financial situation, but it is ridiculously expensive now. You've got to have so much money. To, to operate an NFL team. You have to be able to buy enough equity. You have to have enough money laying around where you can actually run the team during the off season when the TV money isn't coming in. But I'd love to see Eddie DeBartolo as a team owner again.
2: I'm going to play devil's advocate here, though. The question was people who can be better of that second chance. Eddie is already in the Hall of Fame. Can he be better than, than what All he right. was before? You can't go in the Hall All of right. Fame again.
1: First of all, the devil's doing just fine on his own. Second of all, (laughs) you got a pretty good point there. You're up.
2: (laughs) All right, my second pick, I'm going to go with Dennis Allen. You can't hold the Raiders against him. A lot of guys have gone and coached in Oakland and been failures. He was a failure in Oakland. But look at what he's done with that Saints defense. I mean, we never thought the Saints defense would be any good, and it is good. It has become good. Uh, with what he's been able to do there. And and so Aggie, great. Dennis Allen, I think, deserves a second chance. He's another guy. You never hear his name mentioned anymore. He's just like Leslie Frazier. He's kind of gotten forgotten. I mean, we hear more about Dan Campbell on that Saints staff than we hear about Dennis Allen. And I think we should hear more about Dennis Allen. Still young, still a really good football coach. And I think he could be a head coach again in this league and be a very good head coach again in this league. He wasn't the first right. time. I-
1: and you're absolutely right. There was a stretch early in the year when the Saints defense was really good that his name was being mentioned. It really is funny, though. When when you see all the names that get mentioned from September to November, but then in December, there's only a very small handful of names that actually are mentioned when it's time to figure out who's going to get the interviews, and Allen's name didn't come up at all. And I agree with you that what he's done with that defense justifies consideration for another head coaching opportunity Poor Dennis Allen. right. The last one for me, and I don't think he wants a second chance, but if we're going to be strict about the actual definition of the draft, Shereen, <laughs> people who could be better given a second chance, it doesn't say they have to want it. Nick Saban could be better and ah, would be I better if he mind. had a second. Did I tie? you? Ah, you shouldn't have sandbagged until round three. Nick Saban, if he had a second <laughs> chance, could be better and would be better as a head coach in the NFL. The problem is, He hated coaching in the NFL. His wife hated the NFL existence. They are made for the college campus, the college life, being the king and queen of Tuscaloosa or East Lansing or Baton Rouge or whatever mid-level to small city that is dominated by the presence of a college football program. But if Nick Saban were to return to the National Football League with the right quarterback, and he said within the past few years – if they had signed Drew Brees back in 2006, he'd still be coaching the Dolphins. And remember, they could have had Drew Brees. Sorry, Dolphins fans. They didn't want Drew Brees. They, and Drew Brees was free and clear, but he had 26 studs in his shoulder. They opted instead to give up a second-round pick to get Dante Culpepper with the torn knee ligament trifecta at the time. But uh, Nick Saban, I've, I, you know, and I've given up hoping and – and wishing that Saban would come back? Because, you know, the NFL is already pretty exciting with one Bill Belichick. You throw a second one in there, just cantankerous curmudgeon. I'd love to have Nick Saban back in the NFL, but I don't think it's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I should have won the trivia question, because I had Nick Saban as my third pick in there, too, and I would love to see Nick Saban back in the NFL as well. And I do think he can win at the NFL level. I know he can win at the NFL level with what he's done in college. and. I know he told Jason Witten one time. Witten told me this that you can make a bigger difference in the coaching ranks at the college level than at the pro level. But I think he could make a big difference at the pro level, too, if given that that second chance. My last pick, I guess we need to go to a player since we've had five picks who weren't players. Uh, And I'm going to go with Jameis Winston. You know, he had the 5,000. He had the, yeah, there you go. He had the 5,000 yard season this past season. He threw the 30 touchdowns. Got to get rid of those interceptions. Got to get rid of those fumbles. Seven pick sixes. We know all that. But I think if he goes somewhere else to the right situation, I think Jameis Winston can win in this league.
1: All right, now I'm throwing the challenge flag. The guy threw 5,109 passing yards. Shereen, oh, oh, it has to be better. It didn't if not make a second the Pro Bowl. Chance. But he threw 5,109 passing yards. I yeah. But he threw for more passing yards than anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth, other than four guys: Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and Ben Roethlisberger. I think he's doing all right. I really, I really am amazed that the Buccaneers are genuinely ambivalent about Jameis Winston. Look, coach the 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 weak spots out of his game, Bruce. Show us that you can that you can truly be a quarterback whisperer. Be a quarterback F-bomber if you have to to get him to quit throwing the interceptions. We've seen the good Jameis Winston. There has to be a way to get the good and minimize the bad. But maybe maybe after one full season, uh, Bruce Arians realizes that there's nothing more he can do with this guy, that he's just destined to be a turnover machine. All right, that's our draft. You know, another guy I was thinking of adding to the list, um, because he's only been a general manager once, but there's so many—let I, I let me just say generally, any general manager that only had one job— because they get fired so quickly, there's a chance they'd all be better the second time around. Isn't it amazing that coaches get second chances? But general managers, very rarely, some have. Some have. Dave Gettleman got a second chance. Uh, and, and there's another name that, I'm, that that's popping around inside of my head of a guy who got a second chance. But for the most part, Shereen, you get one shot. You work your whole career to get to that spot. You're a GM, and if it doesn't work out, you're done, and you're never coming back.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of those guys out there. I think Ryan Grigson is a guy who I think would be good in a second chance as a GM. There's there's quite a few of them now out there who I think could do a good job if they got that second chance. You're right. Never really thought about that, but GMs don't get second chances. You better be very good at the job with your first chance because you're not going to get that second chance in the position uh, that they are in.
1: Time for a break. We have more to come here on the Best of Pro Football Talk Live on NBC Sports Radio. The XFL made its return this weekend, kind of. It's a completely different league than the one that debuted in 2001 and lasted one season. I watched three of the four games, not all of them, not every minute. I love the kickoff, Big Cat. It looks like electric football when you have 10 guys on the 30 and 10 guys on the 35 standing still while the ball is in the air. And then they all start moving once the returner catches it. And it's also a much safer play because you don't have guys running full speed at each other, concussing themselves or breaking their necks, which has happened with kick returns. But, you know, I look, it, it did well. 3.3 million watched it on ABC on Saturday. Two and a half million watched it on, on ESPN on Sunday. I, I just, you know, is it sustainable? The point that you made last week, once we get into March Madness, once we get into NFL free agency, once baseball is back, once basketball NBA style starts to heat up, hockey playoffs roll around, will it be forgotten? Will it just be a curiosity or will it have a footing?
0: Right, I agree with you there, and uh, because it's my own point, that's why I'm agreeing with you. Uh, I just realized that we're, we're at the end of. It sounded really smart what you said, and then I realized you were just quoting me. But I watched it, Mike. I watched most of the games. It's okay. Like I, I liked it. It was better than the AAF. It's not NFL, and I don't think it's ever going to be the NFL. And that's really what it comes down to me uh, is that the rules are great. I, I, I love that the NFL will be forced to adapt to some of these rules. You mentioned the kickoff rule. I also really, really enjoyed the three-point rule because it feels like teams are still in it. You know what I mean? When you're down 17 points, it's still a two-score game. That adds a little intrigue to the whole affair. My problem is not only the schedule of, hey, when other sports get kicking, when playoffs come for the NBA and March Madness, all this, you're going to be tuning into that. It's just the quality of play is never going to be the NFL. Just watching, doing this show for the last two hours, watching Cam Newton highlights, watching, uh, you know, whoever – who else we show? Phil Rivers highlights, watching Dak Prescott highlights. You realize the quality of play in the NFL is at such a level. And to take a step back and watch quarterbacks that can't make it in the NFL, and a lot of them have tried and failed – it's just a different football. It's just not the same level. So while I'll probably continue to watch, I won't invest a super large amount of time into it, knowing that at the end of the day, if there's March Madness on, I'm probably going to be watching March Madness. No, I will be watching March Madness.
1: The star of the week for week one was P.J. Walker, who used to be known as Philip Walker, who had three preseasons with the Colts, never played in a regular season game. Never made it to the 53-man roster. He was the best player this past weekend, at least as it relates to the award that they gave out. He had four touchdown passes for the Houston Roughnecks in their 37-17 win over the L.A. Wildcats. Oh, my God. How do I remember the score of that game? And the scoring wasn't as much as really I thought it would be. And I don't like the fact that they've got the three levels of extra point, and they always go for one. I Not know. for one from I the th- two. Th- go for two from the five at a minimum. Mike.
0: Mike, it's so funny. When you watch the XFL, that that hit me right away where you have a bunch of guys who are coaching who are cast off who are maybe trying to get back in the NFL. Kevin, Kevin Gilbride, you know, cast off in 2013. Mark Trestman, fired by the Bears. He obviously was with the Ravens for a little bit, then in the CFL. But for the majority of the guys who are coaching outside of maybe Bob Stoops, they, did, they didn't willingly walk away from the NFL or high-level college football. It was their time. So they're all trying to get back into this high-level football, the NFL, and you'd think the way to get back into it is to be aggressive, to to throw it down the field, to go for three, for go for it on fourth down. Yet the inner football guy comes over and they say we got to do the most conservative thing possible. It's crazy. It's it's actually like a, a great sociological uh, or psychological experiment to watch football guys trying to get back to where they once were and doing it with the most conservative route they can possibly take.
1: And, and it's ridiculous because, look, I understand coaches don't like to do the unconventional thing. If you do the conventional thing and it doesn't work, then nobody can criticize you. You do something unconventional, you get criticized. There's no convention. This right. is all new. They right. all should just have agreed, we're just going to go for two. Let the, 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 the default is we're going to go for two. We'll go for one if it's a tie game. Even then, don't you want a little more space? Hell, I'd
0: put it at the 10 every time and go for three. Give me yeah. a little room to work with down here. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure someone will do an analytical deep dive into the XFL, and you should go for three every single time. It's awesome. Do it. Here's another point
1: that Peter King and I made earlier this week. The D.C. Defenders had 17,000 people and change in a 20,000-seat stadium. It felt like an exciting game. The New York Guardians had 17,000 and change in 82,000-seat MetLife Stadium. It felt like a, an, an empty venue. And th- Why don't they have all these teams playing in 20,000-seat stadiums? I mean, I know that at some level you want to say, well, if this really takes off, we don't want to be capped at 20,000. But to get started for the first year or two, you need to be realistic about how many people are going to show up. And the, you know, if you get 17,000 week one, who's going to be there week eight or nine? And and it just looks awful on TV to have those the upper deck completely empty in all of these stadiums, playing stadiums that don't have an upper deck. Time for a break. We have more to come here on the Best of Pro Football Talk Live on NBC Sports Radio.